Good morning, church. My name is Jim Lanier, and I'm one of the elders here. For those that are visiting or haven't been here very long, don't know me, I'm one one of the elders, and it's my privilege to to speak this morning to you. Mitch has a furious uh, late summer and early fall schedule. He's leaving today with the rest of our team to go to India. And we've had the privilege last week of listening to Eric Cohn. First time he preached, who could who could believe that? He did such a fantastic job. Next week, Eric Croft will be here. As I said, it's a privilege to be speaking here with you today, talking about the good news of Jesus Christ according to John. We're continuing the sermon series concerning the seven I Am statements of Jesus. For the month of October, which is Reformation Month, the sermons will cover the five foundational understandings of Reformed theology, the five solas, Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. I'm looking forward to that series. But for today, we're looking primarily at the first of two I Am statements Jesus makes in John chapter 10. I'm in a bit of a pickle here today because most of the text that we'll look at today concerns the Good Shepherd. I am the Good Shepherd, and that's what Eric is preaching on next week. So I'm going to try not to trample all over him and stick to uh, what I've been told to preach. So let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get into the text. Father, I thank You for the perfection of Your Word. I thank You that it is complete in every way, telling us who You are and who we are. And like Paul, I want to say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. And like Paul, I give thanks to You that through the door that is Jesus Christ, we are delivered from death unto life abundant. And I pray that by Your Holy Spirit, the profound nature of this delivery, the profound nature of Your perfect plan will be impressed upon us so that our lives will be transformed. I pray that You will guard my words and quickly bring correction and understanding should I confuse or speak in error. We give You thanks this day for being here with us and being the great I Am. Amen. Okay, turn with me to John chapter 10. And today's focus is on verses 7 and 9, which say, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and go out and find pasture. And to see the whole entire context for this, I'm going to go back and read John 1, John 10, 1 through 18. Now in my Bible, you know, most of our Bibles with modern translations have little headings over different sections of the Bible. I don't think, uh, I don't think John wrote that in there, but, uh, the heading for this one says, I am the good shepherd. I'm going to try to stay away from that. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. 
But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, and this is verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna continue with 11 through 18, but I'm gonna try not to talk too much about it today. It'll give you a little preview of a coming attraction when Eric appears next week. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Before we, get, we begin to drill down into this particular passage... Let me say a few things about the I am statements in general. There are seven of them. I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, and the true vine. Jesus is making bold statements about his character and his mission. But as important as his character and mission are, the central emphatic claim here is in the simple declaration, I am. Every time he says it, it's like he's poking his opponents with a sharp stick. I am, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. Seven perfect times he is telling the Jews, I am God. And seven times they are hearing, Heretic, heretic, heretic. For Jesus is either one or the other. Savior, Son of God, or heretical, lying, lunatic. Indeed, the purpose of the Gospel from John 20 is that by writing these things, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing in Him, you will have life in His name. All of the I am statements have to do with life, life abundant. And throughout the gospel, some will believe and some will plot to kill. 
Acceptance and salvation. Rejection. Judgment. Why do I say He is saying He is God? In Exodus three fourteen and 15, God tells Moses His name. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And He said, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Three times here he uses the form of the Hebrew word which means to be, Hayah, from which the name Yahweh is derived, a name which should not be spoken or even written. It's a name so holy that it is even today rendered in our Bibles, capital L and smaller but still capital O-R-D. The Jewish religious leaders confronting Jesus had indeed remembered the name throughout all generations and knew exactly the claim that Jesus was making. But the radiant brilliance of the sun was eclipsed by the law, which was always right before their eyes. Now let's get to the text. Truly, truly, I say to you. Let's stop right there. We didn't get too far, did we? The Greek translated truly, truly is Amen, Amen. It's a transliteration from the Hebrew and transliterated forward to Latin and English, Amen. It's the universal word. When used at the end of a statement or discourse, as we all know, it affirms all that has already been said. So it is. So be it. Or may it be so. And when it comes at the beginning of a discourse, it means what follows is the truth. You may say, the gospel truth. Truly, I say to you, is used over 45 times in the New Testament. But the emphatic, truly, truly, I say to you, is used 25 times in each occasion in John's gospel. And each time Jesus is emphatically correcting previous misunderstandings or confronting strongly what has just occurred or what has just been stated. The expression is used three times with Nicodemus in chapter 3, three times in chapter 5 after Jesus heals the invalid at the pool of Bethesda, four times in chapter 6's discussion on the bread of life, and three times in chapter 8, the last of which at the end of the chapter states, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Well, so when Jesus at the beginning of chapter 10 says, Truly, truly, we know he's about to blast somebody for something that just happened. So let's go back to chapter 9 to see what this is all about and see who's about to get it and for what. Can you feel the tension building a little bit? Chapter 9 tells the story of Jesus healing a man blind from birth with a little spit and mud pie. You would think it would be a cause for celebration, but oh, no, no, no. You see, it's the Sabbath. So the Pharisees have to identify this culprit who has committed this heinous sin. They called in the parents for questioning, but fearful 
the parents refused to make a statement. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Out of the fear, out of fear, the parents said, "Ask him yourself. He's a grown man." The heel man, not even yet knowing that he had been met by the Savior, responds, "Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind." If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Out of the synagogue, he is cast. You see, the Pharisees, in taking the Ten Commandments and expanding them to hundreds of rules and regulations, held all the keys for entering into the fellowship with God. They could open the door, and they could slam it shut and lock it tight. So Jesus, in His usual cryptic way, tells an allegory built around animal husbandry techniques commonly accepted in His day and still in practice today. The first five verses of chapter 10 describe a communal sheepfold within a town. Shepherds returning nightly from pasture would shelter their flocks together in a communal pen, perhaps with even rock walls. And one opening, a hired gatekeeper would keep watch over the gate, and the shepherds would go into town. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because Eric might not appreciate it, and he's a lot bigger than I am. But tell him old guys fight dirty. (laughs) The verses compare good shepherds to bad shepherds, and he will want to elaborate. From verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand. So to clarify, Jesus subtly changes the reference to a sheepfold out in the country. If the flock is too far from the town common to return at night, the shepherd would construct an enclosure to keep the sheep together and safe. And in the opening of that enclosure, the shepherd himself would lie down to keep the sheep in and predators out. So illuminating them in verse 7 to 10, Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is not talking about sheep, shepherds, or sheepfolds. He is talking about a door in the wall that separates us from God. Truly, truly. He is talking about the passageway to salvation. Salvation, redemption, and the restoration of the intimate communion Adam and Eve enjoyed with God in the garden. Jesus is that door. Jesus alone. Solo Christo. So how does this fit into God's great plan? How did the Pharisees get so fouled up? 
what caused them to erect over generations the impenetrable door of the law. It goes back to the beginning. Genesis 3, 22-24. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The first door was erected and the cherubim locked it shut. And the rest of the book tells how God will unlock it and open it back up. In due course, God selects a man, Abram, a pagan sinner from Ur of the Chaldees. You'll do, Abram. I'm calling you out of your father's land to a land I will give you, where I will grow you into a mighty nation through whom I will bless, here redeem, all the families of the earth. Fast forward about 400 years in Abraham's family. God's chosen people are in slavery to Pharaoh. Again, God calls them out of Egypt into the wilderness where the law is given to them. Rules and regulations. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. What to eat and how to interact with one another and especially how to approach God. There has to be barriers between God and the people. There can be no intimate fellowship of corruption with perfection. It would mean destruction. So God begins to give instruction as a part of His plan for redemption. Build a tabernacle, a place where my glorious presence can be experienced, but only at a distance. The tabernacle should have only one door, only one way to enter. Just inside the door, the altar of the burnt offering. The approach to God is through a sacrifice. Exodus gives the detailed construct of the tent and its furnishings, and Leviticus codifies what seems like a thousand obscure ritualistic mechanisms that by strict practice the door to God may be cracked open a bit. And admit it, none of us uses Leviticus for our devotional meditations. By the way, do you know where the word Leviticus comes from? Not from the Hebrew. It comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew, and it means simply stuff about the Levites. <laughs> but do you know the Hebrew title? The Hebrew title is He Called. The first words of the book, The Lord Called Moses. Even in giving all these confusing rituals and regulations, the Lord was calling the people into His presence, working His plan to restore the intimacy of the garden. Over time, by the touch of humanity, the mechanisms for approach became obstacles and barriers erected by the law. If you want to pass through this door, you've got to earn it. You have to qualify. You have to be the right kind of person from the acceptable tribe with the proper physical attributes. 
But through the ages, there are glimpses of God's grace-filled plan. Isaiah 7, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and call his name Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. Can it be so? In Isaiah 56, another glimpse. Let the foreigner who has joined himself to me say, Surely the Lord will will not separate me from His people. And not let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name and shall not be cut off. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to Him besides those already gathered. Didn't Jesus say that in John 10? Do you suppose Philip remembered Isaiah's scandalous prophecy when he met the Ethiopian eunuch on the road? Well, how will God accomplish this? Again from Isaiah, 700 years before it will happen, God reveals how the door will spring open. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. And many will be accounted righteous because He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Verily, verily, I say to you, He alone is the door to abundant life and intimate fellowship with the God of the garden. So we have seen the what of John 10. Jesus tells us a story about sheep, sheepfolds, and shepherds. And He uses it to condemn the Pharisees who have cast out the once blind man and now healed man who has been touched by Jesus and who is now compelled to speak the truth about where His healing came from. And we have talked about the so what. Jesus is really talking about His true identity. Jesus Christ Son of God, the only door to abundant, eternal life and intimate fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now let's talk about the now what. How are we, Three Rivers Church, to respond to the truth we have seen? As Paul rebuked the church in Galatia, let us, not, let us be accursed if we distort the gospel of the completed work of Christ alone. Salvation does not come by keeping the law, behaving right, attending church, belonging to a particular denomination, almost getting kidnapped in a foreign land, being baptized by a particular method, or serving in radical kids week after week after week after week after week. The only pathway to salvation is claiming for ourselves the work of Jesus Christ 
that we could never do on our own. Each week we begin our service remembering that Gospel, as Eric said this morning. On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and said, Take, eat. The Pharisees had told the hill man, Over our dead bodies will you enter the synagogue. And Jesus says, Precisely and only over my dead body will you enter the kingdom. He took the cup, blessed it, and gave it to them and said, This is my blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus soon died on the cross, a marvelous thing happened. The veil which sealed the entrance to the most holy place, the veil that kept the people out, was torn in two from top to bottom. Do you know the symbol that was embroidered into that veil according to Exodus? Cherubim. Only Christ's atoning death was powerful enough to separate the cherubim posted at the garden. Step aside, boys. There's a new sheriff in town. I'll take it from here. The garden, the kingdom of God, is open for business. Come to the tree of life. Eat and live forever. We preach Christ alone. And we must preach it to those we don't like. You see, the strain of the Pharisee is in us all. The beginning of chapter 9 is interesting. As he passed by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. And Jesus saw an opportunity to be about God's glorious work of redemption. But His disciples... His disciples saw only a sinner. Who sinned? This man or his parents? The very followers of Jesus were declaring Him to be lesser, unworthy of fellowship, unworthy of redemption. But Jesus, having heard that He had been cast out of the synagogue, found the man and ushered him into the kingdom. A simple question he asks, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is He, sir, that I may believe in Him? You have seen Him. He is speaking to you. Lord, I believe. And He worshipped Him. The door opened for the cast out one. In Matthew 16, Peter proclaims Jesus' eternal identity. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Sort of sounds like John 20, doesn't it? What a coincidence. Some would debate what I'm going to say, but I believe that it is upon this rock, this truth claim of Jesus' identity, that Jesus says He will build His church. He then states, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Keys are for locking and unlocking. And Peter must soon decide which way he will use them. The story is in Acts 10. An unqualified, unclean Roman centurion summons Peter to violate the law 
enter his house and tell him how he could be saved. Having been told by God to kill and eat all those creepy things, Peter responds appropriately. God shows no partiality, he says. Everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins and through forgiveness of sins through His name. And in Acts 15, Peter must defend what he has done and witnessed as the Jerusalem Council contemplates the barriers to be erected in front of the new Gentile believers. What will we require of them? Peter tells them, the cat's out of the bag and not going back in. God has made no distinction between us and them, he says, having cleansed their hearts through faith. Why are you putting God to the test? Unlock the dang door. The church and we individual followers still hold the keys to the kingdom and have the power to unlock and lock. I want you to be clear about verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is not saying that believers can exit the kingdom once they come in. This is an idiomatic expression referring to the walk of life, coming and going. But for us, it is a reminder of our up, in, and out strategy. Like the heel man, we worship up. We gather together to encourage one another and grow in the faith in. And we go out into our domains to transform the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Up, in, out. And we must present the good news without partiality. I must confess the Pharisee in me. Maybe a bit of Pharisee in some of you. There's a man in our family that I feel deserves a particular warm corner of hell. And there's a part of me that wants to lock him out. But in confessing the darkness in my heart, I pray that God would be glorified by showing Him the door that is Jesus Christ. And as much as I wish to bite my tongue, I pray that God will give me an opportunity to tell this scoundrel the good news. I'm not alone. Mitch posted an article this week by Bob Roberts. You may have seen it on Facebook. Is anybody about to get enough of Bob Roberts, Bob Roberts, Bob Roberts, Bob Roberts? I had to kid Mitch a little bit. See, sarcasm is his love language, and it's always my mission to love him just a little bit. Robert said that years ago, God convicted him of his fear, disdain, and dislike for Muslims. Fear, disdain, and dislike for Muslims might be common. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God performed the necessary heart work by which He has become an evangelist to the Muslims. 
an evangelist to the Muslims and a reproach to some of the people in his congregation. We're going to hear a special guest in a couple of weeks, and I guess there are a few of us, upon hearing, wondered what in God's name do we want to find out about Islam for? We know where they're going. We know where they're heading. But over Christ's dead body, they can have a different destination. And to show them that way and that door, we have to know what they believe and why they believe it. We must proclaim the gospel and we are called to do it in an appealing and winsome way. But we must not be surprised when rejected. To a disbelieving and even antagonistic culture, we still must speak the truth. Occasionally it will be received as a poke from a sharp stick. I am. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Verily, verily, there is only one truth. You know, just 50 years ago, there were Baptist churches all over the South and probably even in Rome, Georgia, that posted usher guards at the tall, white, self-righteous columns to turn away those people, those troublemakers, trying to get through our doors. We've come a long way, and the villainy of the alt-right has been proclaimed and condemned from pulpits everywhere. But how many of us have prayed for their salvation. Don't they deserve to hear the gospel too? One of my friends posted the result of a study of the towns of Georgia on Facebook. You may have seen it. The study ranked the top ten white trash cities of Georgia. The criteria was, of course, demographics, then meth use, the number of dollar stores, (laughs) and the number of check cashing establishments. Rome was number 10, but our white trash was designated high class white trash. I'm not sure how we earned that distinction. I'm certainly not endorsing the survey or even the term. But I will say that many comprising the 80% unchurched in our county simply don't look like us. Could it be that we're just uncomfortable being around them and simply haven't asked them to come through the door? Every time we have the pleasure of being a greeter, we have the opportunity to welcome someone to the door that is Jesus. And sometimes that person 
may not look like someone we want to go to lunch with. Gut check. Christ calls us to go into the highways and byways of our community. He calls us to beckon the lost and the least and the last through the door that is Jesus into the banquet that He has prepared. And He calls us to the hard places and the hard peoples. Other sheep He has and He will bring them in. Finally, if you have been hanging out near the sheepfold, maybe thinking that if you can just get close enough or maybe even slip in over the wall of good works, repent, believe, and be saved this day. The door that is Jesus is wide open for you. Like the healed blind man, I think it's a marvelous reason for us to worship this day. So let us conclude our service with that worship. Amen? Amen. Father God, we thank You again that Your Word tells us that although we are all before You without Jesus, trash, white trash, black trash, Hispanic trash, trash. But by the covering that is the blood of Jesus, we have all been made pure and white and righteous. And we give you thanks for the door that is Jesus. Amen.